all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, host of Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking. Join the conversation every Tuesday at 11 as we dissect issues that are important to you and your family. That's Relatively Speaking, Tuesdays only on MPB Think Radio. MPB Think Radio, this is Southern Remedy, Women's Health, where we discuss issues involving women's health. I'm Dr. Jasmine Kinsey, Assistant Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at UMMC. And as I say every week, happy Friday, everybody, TGIF. Thank God it's Friday. So I hope maybe, I don't know how many people have a lot of plans this weekend because we went from cold and ice to just a gloomy, rainy, stormy week. Like it's just been really hard to to get going this week. But I will say this, I've gotten some really good sleep at night, just kind of listening to the rain in the background and all that good stuff. So I will say that's one of the positives of kind of a rainy, cloudy day is, you know, if you're the night shift that some of the best sleep you get during the day is when it's gloomy outside. But it was a such a foggy morning. So people that are still out there still make sure you're being super careful, um, you know, with the slick roads and some of the fog and things of those things of that nature. So. Um, As I mentioned, if you were listening to the introduction, January is Cervical Cancer Awareness Month. And the one thing I like about Awareness Months is it just kind of takes us back to the basics and takes some time just to remind us of the importance of these types of cancers and what we can do to ultimately screen, detect, prevent, early diagnosis, early treatment, all those things. And I like this because it's such perfect. Perfect timing, because as I mentioned in one of my previous shows this month is, you know, New Year's, new resolutions, new goals for the year. I really hope that it's on your list that if you have fallen off of the bandwagon of getting your annual checkups or checking in with your doctor, that you take this opportunity to add that to your New Year's resolution list. Um, that was one of the things that's been really hard for us in primary care with the pandemic, just the number of people that were no longer seeing their physicians just for routine checkups. And so we're seeing so many patients later post-pandemic with a lot of screenings and things of that nature that kind of fell to the wayside or were missed um, during that time. So if you have not seen your doctor um, in a few years, then I think this is a great opportunity to that after the now or when the show is over, that you take that time to do that. And as you hear me say, probably every show as well, and many of us on the Southern Remedy series is if you don't take anything else away from us, it's seeing your doctor regularly, talking to them about your concerns. And even if you feel perfectly fine, it is my goal to keep it that way. Coming in once a year, getting screened and checked with your blood pressure, if you need cholesterol, diabetes, 
your up-to-date cancer screenings based on your age, risk factors, and all those things. Make sure that we are doing that. So today, I'm really going to take the time to focus on cervical cancer, as I mentioned before. And cervical cancer is the fourth most common cancer in women globally. So that's really why, you know, we want to make sure that we're taking time to focus on it. And if you're looking online, you're going to see various statistics from different cancer um, websites versus the CDC. But I've landed somewhere between about 11,000 to 13,000 or so um, new cases of invasive cervical cancer diagnosed um, in the United States um, each year. And so, you know, it's definitely something that affects many. And as we mentioned, with many cancers that have the opportunity to be screened for, that earlier detection is our best chance of cure and treatment and, you know, really kind of surviving many of the cancers. So as I mentioned before, you know, cervical cancer is fourth most common cause of cancer in women. Um, For people that might be less familiar, um, cervical cancer is one of the cancers of the reproductive system, of women's reproductive system. So we've got cervical cancer, ovarian cancer, uterine cancer, vaginal, um, vulvar, and very, very rare fallopian tube cancer. What's unique to cervical cancer is we actually have a screening test for it, meaning that we can look for signs of it, precancerous cells or other risk factors that put us at risk for it beforehand. And early diagnosis means, as I said before, just like with breast cancer and any other cancer, more success um, to treating it. So many of us know, you know, we talk about cervical cancer and um, screening for cervical cancer. So that that's usually done by the great old what we call pap smear, or there's multiple ways to do it. So, so pap is short for Pacanicolau, and not like a mouthful to say. <laughs> so that's why we call it pap testing, essentially. So that's pretty one that's pretty easy um, to remember. So you can do that alone. The other way that we can essentially test um, for or, or screen for cervical cancer is looking for. HPV, primary HPV or human papillomavirus, again, a mouthful. So HPV is the quick way that we say that. So you can do that testing or you can do a combination of the test. Um, So it's really, you know, depends on the person, depends on your age, your risk factors and those types of things. And again, having that conversation with your doctor. So as we mentioned before, one of the tests you can do is what we call a pap smear. You can do that test alone, and that's essentially where your doctor goes and examines, gets to your cervix, takes a little bit of sample um, of the cells there, and are able to look for any type of abnormality um, that you see there. The HPV testing is where you go in and you do kind of um, another like a, a swab, but you're actually able to send it specifically looking for HPV, the human papillomavirus. And so the FDA has approved different types of tests to look for HPV in a lot of our patients. And as I mentioned before, you can do both. And so it really depends on how that test looks, depends essentially on your risk of having that type of cervical cancer. So one of the big things that I want to highlight um, that has changed in our recommendations of screening. So we use the United States Preventive Task Force for a lot of our recommendations in many of our cancer societies is that 
in the past, it was like you're sexually active, get to your OBGYN, get an exam and get a pap smear. Well, we no longer recommend pap smears for people less than 21. So we don't you don't aren't required to get pap smears or screening until you're 21 or older. So I want to add the caveat to that. That does not mean that you don't necessarily need to see your OBGYN. But if you become sexually active, you need to be screened for other STDs, STIs, develop that relationship. If you're looking for birth control, things of that nature, then of course, I still recommend getting into an OBGYN before the age of 21. But before running to your OB to get a pap smear, we're not doing that before the age of 21. So so now the recommendations are once you reach the age of 21 and between the age of about 29, you're going to get a pap smear or cervical cytology looking at those cells at least every three years is how they're recommending it now. And then once you reach the age of 25 or so, you can add the HPV testing to that every five years. So um, everyone's like, but I go to my OBGYN every year or my primary care doctor and I'm getting a pap smear every year. Insurance companies do cover just your routine. Most insurance companies, I will say, cover your routine pap smear every year, but it's not necessarily required. The recommendations is at least every three years for that and then about every five years for HPV. And that, again, is patients that we would consider um, average risk. Once you get a little bit older, between the age of 30 and 65, it's still about the same what we kind of recommend. You can do the HPV testing every five years, but you can um, spread it out to co-testing of HPV and pap smears every five years or do a pap alone every three years. So again, that is essentially a mouthful. But I try to remind patients, it is whatever you and your doctor decide the screening interval is for you. So knowing your history, your family history, other risk factors can really ultimately determine um, when you get the pap smear. One of the questions I get from some of my patients, they're like, oh my gosh, I've gone through menopause. All these things are going on. Like, what are we doing? When can this stop? So for most of your recommendations, once you reach the age of 65 and older, if you have consistently had potentially negative pap smears, really haven't had any abnormal cells or things of that nature, most people can discontinue um, getting those screenings. And it oftentimes, when should you stop depends on your life expectancy um, and all those things. So again, as we call it in medicine, that shared decision making, the conversation you have with your doctor is the one who ultimately gets to decide when that um, screening stops. And for those people that are just joining us on the radio, this is January, which is Cervical Cancer Awareness Month. And so I kind of just wanted to spend some time on this segment reminding us about cervical cancer, what are the current screening recommendations, and what are some things that we can do to prevent it. As I mentioned before, it is the fourth most common cause of cancer in women globally. Um, It is a cancer, again, of the reproductive system of the woman, and it's the cervix. It is actually the only um, 
cancer of the women's reproductive system that we have a clear screening test for and clear screening guidelines. Um, and as I mentioned before, that can be done with a pap smear, um, HPV testing, or a combination of the both of both of them. And so as I say most of the time, CDC is a wonderful resource if you're ever just kind of wondering, wanting to read a little bit more um, and see any updates in the screenings and things that are kind of coming down the pipeline. And oftentimes where I kind of make sure I get most of our my information, but also the United States Preventive Task Force has a website um, that many of us use. And then again, most of your um, American um, Cancer Society has wonderful resources um, if you just have more thoughts or questions after listening to this episode. So I talked a little bit about, you know, when you get the screening, how often you get the screening is really dependent upon you as a patient. Um, what are your risk factors? Are you considered average risk or high risk? And so if you're sitting at the house, you're like, I don't know. Um, some things that um, we consider you to be average risk or lower risk is if you're asymptomatic, meaning you have no signs. Um, and that could mean anything. You know, it's really tricky when you come when we're talking about the uh, diagnosis um, of cancer. So a lot of times any patient that's having postmenopausal bleeding after you've reached menopause, that is abnormal. And you need to be seeing your um, primary care doctor about that for further evaluation. Most of our patients, um, you know, oftentimes that have unexplained weight loss, um, abdominal pains, things of that nature. One of the first things I do with unexplained weight loss is I talk with my patient. Have they had all of their age appropriate screening? So at that point, I would consider you symptomatic and not average risk. So if you're not having um, you're considered asymptomatic, if you are immunocompetent, so not a significant disease that is compromising your immune system. So patients out there with HIV have different recommendations. They are at higher risk um, of cervical cancer, HPV really turning into a cancerous type. Um, so they are considered higher risk and their screening intervals are a little bit different. Um also, if you um, have had an abnormal pap smear, atypical cells in the past, you at that point are considered higher risk. And so your screening intervals may vary. Um, so, again, that's just the important thing about getting in with your physician. One interesting thing, though, about cervical cancer is there's data that says that if you get screened at least one time in your lifetime, that you really do reduce your risk of, of significant disease. However, you know, again, one time we know things can change over time. So I don't want to say I don't want you to be sitting in on your sofa riding in your car thinking, oh, I got that last screen about five years ago. I was good. Um, no, I want you to make sure you're still getting out, um, because as we said, early detection essentially is the best way um, for us to ultimately detect. So one of the most common questions I get besides when can I stop um, screening for my cervical cancer, the next group of people um, that have questions is, what if I've had a hysterectomy? Do I still have to get cervical cancer screening? And again, that is a patient by patient situation. So if you are a person that has had a total hysterectomy and you know that your cervix has been removed, those are patients who do, and you've never had a history of cervical cancer, those patients do not have to undergo screening for cervical cancer. 
If you had a subtotal hysterectomy, meaning that your cervix is intact, then those patients will continue to be screened for cervical cancer. So it depends on what type of surgery you've had. And if you say, Dr. Kinsey, that was so long ago, I have absolutely no idea what they did during that surgery, then you need to get in with your primary care doctor, get a good exam, and they can help you figure out which of those categories um, you're in. But if you have had a hysterectomy, that cervix is gone, they've taken everything, um, this is something that you typically do not have to worry about. So I get that a lot because, you know, what are some of the barriers to some people wanting to get cervical cancer screening? And it's many of the things that many of us can kind of guess. Like, it's uncomfortable. You know, a lot of these things we talk about breast cancer screening and the mammogram and those types of things can be fairly uncomfortable exams, but they can be life saving. So um, there is a very small percentage of false positives that can happen. Um, but again, that is pretty rare. And I hope that is not one of the things that deter you um, from getting screened. And then, of course, some people also are afraid of of what the results are. And as I've said on many other episodes, please don't let fear be the reason that you don't know where you stand in general. The other thing is, you know, some people that are trying to get pregnant um, that have had an abnormal pap smear or have had a procedure on the cervix, it can increase your risk of complications during pregnancy um, and an incompetent cervix or preterm labor and things of that nature. But again, that's why I also continue to encourage my patients to keep that relationship with their primary care provider. So I do all this talking about uh, cervical cancer and HPV and and, uh, HPV screening. And some people are like, what are you talking about? You know, um, so HPV, as I mentioned before, is human papillomavirus. And it's a type of virus that is seen really throughout nature. But HPV, of course, is very um, directed towards humans. It is the one that is in humans. And the crazy thing about it is there's over 200 types of HPV that we can see. And interestingly enough, HPV is the most common sexually transmitted infection, and people don't realize it. And most people that have HPV are asymptomatic and don't have any symptoms of it. And we'll talk about what HPV can look like as we kind of go through things in this show. Um, Interestingly enough, it peaks oftentimes in the first decade after having sex. So within the first 10 years, most people will have been exposed or had HPV, um, and that for our country is um, typically between the ages, and it kind of makes you cringe when you think about it, 15 to 25 years of age, because it makes you sad to think that our 15-year-olds are sexually active, but some of them are, um, and definitely it puts them at increased risk of having HPV. If you're looking at the statistics, at least 80% of sexually active individuals have been exposed to HPV in their lifetime. And so it's like, why aren't people having symptoms? Interestingly enough, it's transient and most people clear the virus themselves, but it can also reactivate. So that's why we talk about kind of making sure you get your cervical cancer screening, particularly in our immunocompromised patients, because if you're in an immunocompromised state, a virus that is dormant is more likely to reactivate in you because your immune system um, 
is not as strong as other people. And so you hear a lot about HPV-16. So that is the one that is actually the most common cause of cervical cancer and accounts for over half of the cases of cervical cancer. If you were to put HPV-16 and 18 together, that's about 70% of cervical cancer um, in our patients. So it's a big, so HPV and recognizing it and testing for it is a big thing. So that's why we want you guys to make sure that you're getting your pap smears. The other interesting thing, though, when we talk about cervical cancer, I mentioned those types, and I also mentioned there's over 200 types of HPV, is most cases of cervical cancer are actually caused by HPV. There is a rare percentage of about 5 to 10% that is not cervical cancers that is not related to HPV. And as we progress, we'll kind of talk about the importance of why that HPV vaccine, why there's such a push for that in the prevention, um, that we have a vaccine that prevents cancer. As I said before, it, HPV is a huge cause um, of cancer, most of our um, cervical cancers. But interestingly enough, HPV has other ways that it can prevent the human papillomavirus. And so it also is what we see in warts, um, flat warts, plantar warts. The warts that you see on your hands are oftentimes caused by HPV. But do not fret. This is not causing if. If you have genital contact with the wart on your hand, on your partner, things like that, that does not that does not progress to the same type of, um, you know, vaginal vulva. That's completely different. That is more cutaneous. You can also have HPV that ultimately affects um, the anus and genital areas, as we mentioned before. And as I continue to talk about cervical cancer um, and this is women's health, I still want guys to remember that guys are carriers. As I mentioned, the most common uh, sexually transmitted disease is HPV. Asymptomatic guys can oftentimes give HPV um, to their partners. Um, so you can get HPV can oftentimes cause what we know as genital warts. One thing I want to highlight is that genital warts is a completely benign um, infection, and it is not what I'm talking about when I talk ultimately about cervical cancer. So as I mentioned before, so you can also um, get genital warts that is completely benign, and it's usually caused by two types of HPV, 6 and 11. So that is a whole kind of another category. And then, as I mentioned before, you can get HPV, not just of the cervix, but the vagina, vulva, um, cervix, anus, and penis. So all those areas ultimately can be affected by HPV. So that's why um, we think it's important. Females, however, do have a higher incidence um, of getting um anal cancers from HPV. So not just cervical cancer, HPV can ultimately cause um, anal cancer as well. And so that, again, is why we want to make sure that people are considering it and why it's such a big deal, not just for cervical cancer, but other cancers as well. Um, HPV has also been associated with oral pharyngeal cancer. So of the mouth, of the throat. Um, so as many would imagine, if you um, in, um, do have oral sex or things of that nature with HPV, you do have a risk of transmitting um, HPV that way and can increase your risk of having um, oral cancers as well. 
As I mentioned before, many of us essentially can clear HPV um, on on its own, essentially. And then sometimes people can have reactivation. So that's why sometimes testing for HPV can be a little bit tricky. Um, But when Again, that's why I kind of stress the importance ultimately of making sure that you're going out and getting your cervical cancer screening, essentially. So from MPB Think Radio, this is Southern Remedy Women's Health, where we discuss issues involving women's health. I'm Dr. Jasmine Kinsey, Assistant Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at UMMC. And as I said before, TGIF, thank God it's Friday. And for those of you who are driving while you're listening in this kind of gloomy, um, cloudy, uh, misty rain. That's I will be honest. That's my most frustrating type of rain is the misty rain because it's like I feel silly with an umbrella up. <laughs> but then also, if I don't have the umbrella up, I hate to say this, but it also kind of ultimately um, messes up your hair. So I, it, I'm that person that's walking outside and it seems like it's barely raining and you're like, why in the world is, is her umbrella up? That's me. But as I mentioned before, uh, if you are just now listening, uh, January is Cervical Cancer Awareness Month. Um, and so we've spent most of today's show really just kind of diving into um, cancer screening. So um, looks like oh, we just lost our caller. So I'm not sure who was calling in. So uh, please give us a call back uh, with your question. We've been talking about cervical cancer screening. It is one of the um, only cancers of the female reproductive system that we have a clear screening for system at this time. Um, And that is with what we talk about as the pap smear that you can get done by your primary care provider, HPV testing, human papillomavirus testing, or a combination of both. And when you get tested, of course, is based off of your age, your risk factors, previous test results, and things like that. So as I mentioned, the most common cause of cervical cancer is HPV. And so The wonderful thing in the world we live in now is that we actually can prevent cervical cancer now. And how do we do that? It is through vaccination for HPV. As you heard me say before, majority of your cases of cervical cancer are from HPV, except for a very, very, very tiny percent that we're not 100% sure. And so that's an exciting thing. I will admit it's a challenging thing in our current um, society because, you know, vaccines it's scary I tell patients all the time honestly it really is you know trying to we all want to do the right thing for our children for ourselves and for our health and so I just always tell people make sure you're having a good conversation with your provider about your concerns um, about vaccinations and things of that nature Um, when you're making that decision that's what we're here for Um, so we have different types of vaccines. So many of you have probably seen the commercial for Gardasil. And Gardasil is something that was licensed in 2006 by the FDA to help prevent some of the um there are four particular strains of HPV. So as I mentioned before, um, HPV 16 accounting for 50% or more of cervical cancer diagnosis right behind that is is HPV 18. And so the vaccine actually helps protect against those two types of HPV. 
Also, if you're looking at Gardasil, so there's different types of Gardasil. There's four that cover four strands of HPV, and then there's a nine that covers more strands of HPV. But the most common one that kind of came out in 2016 covered 16 and 18, which lead to cervical cancer, um, and then also included 6 and 11. So if you were listening before, um, to the call, 6 and 11 being the one that causes genital um, uh, genital um, warts, essentially. So we were protecting against cancer and also genital warts with the vaccine. Now we have Gardasil 9 out that covers even more strands of HPV. And as I mentioned before, 16 and 18 account for 70% of cervical cancer cases. Then there's all these other strains out there. So the more strains we can cover, the better. Um, so now there's a Gardasil that covers even more strains, and that's the Gardasil 9. Um, and so you can... Um, it's really over 90% effective um, if we talk about preventing um, HPV. And it's always best to try to get it before um, sexual activity. Now, if you've already started having sex or whatever it may be, you still qualify um, for this vaccine. That is not something um, that has been excluded. But it really has done, we have seen great success with it so far. And so if you're looking at the data, so it has helped. So if you look at HPV vaccine, first came out in 2006, infections with HPV types that cause most HPV cancers and genital warts drops 88% among teen girls and 81% among adult women. That's some pretty impressive numbers. I'm sorry, I have to say that. And fewer teens and young adults are getting genital warts just from the introduction of this vaccine. Um it also reduced the number of precancerous lesions that we were seeing in females when they were coming to get their pap smears. Um, and people who received HPV vaccines who were followed for at least 12 years, we saw a significant decrease in HPV over time in them as well. And so it's it's great that we have this vaccine that is available um, for people. So how do I get it? Who's recommended? What age do we recommend this vaccine and things of that nature? So most offices start to offer the HPV vaccination or is recommended between the age of 11 and 12. Um, but it can be administered as young as age nine. And so I also practice um, women's health and adult medicine, but I do pediatrics as well. Um, so a lot of times we end up offering it at the 11 year old visit because that's really the next time that you get your next big set of shots. But it really has been encouraged now in the pediatric data and the American um, Academy of Pediatrics that we start introducing the conversation around the age of nine. So people can really start thinking about if this is something that they want to pursue um, for their child. So when we're talking about um, the HPV vaccine, there is so, if we're being honest, there's so much stigma around it. This idea that if you vaccinate your child with HPV, it's going to encourage them to have sex. No data has really supported that to to this point. You know, by vaccinating your child against um, HPV, you're really de you're really giving them um, a shot at decreasing their risk of cervical cancer. 
in general. And so that starts about the age of 11 to 12 is when we really start talking about it. Um, But for adolescents and adults, really between the age of 13 and 26 who have not been previously vaccinated can get vaccinated as well. And even now they offer it up to the age of 45. Um, so if you've not had HPV before or anything like that and you still, you know, are worried, you know, you can ultimately qualify for the HPV vaccine. Let me also clarify that this is not just a vaccine for women. HPV vaccines, we can vaccinate our sons and men can get vaccinated which the, with the HPV vaccine. Um, so, again, as I mentioned before, Men are typically asymptomatic and can definitely pass the HPV virus to their female or male partners. And so you want to make sure we are not isolating this to our daughters. Yes, huge for women that we decrease the risk of cervical cancer with the vaccine. But if we vaccinate um our males as well, we are decreasing the risk of the spread of HPV and the risk to women who may not be vaccinated. So it really kind of um, adds to what we call that herd immunity. So many people are vaccinated that it protects those that haven't been vaccinated. And we're really starting to reach that and see that with HPV in general. So like with anything else, people really get worried um, about what are the potential side effects of vaccines and vaccinations with HPV. And so Again, if you look at all, all of the data with HPV uh, vaccine and side effects, the most common ones are mild. So you can get some discomfort at the site, at the injection site for the HPV um, vaccine. So a little bit of redness, swelling of the arm, and that oftentimes goes away. Um, you can get headache, feeling tired, nausea, and sometimes muscles um, and or joint pain. One of the most interesting things that I will say that I do, in fact, see in our pediatric clinics when we're giving out, excuse me, the HPV vaccine is that some people can have syncopal episodes. So that means you get the vaccine, you stand up, head to check out too fast and you get dizzy and kind of have a moment that you pass out. These people recover right away. Um, But the recommendation is after receiving um, the HPV vaccine that you at least sit there for about 15 minutes and kind of uh, give yourself um, some time. Um, so usually that's what we see. And of course, the rare things that you can see um, in vaccines in general, like Guillain-Barre syndrome and things of that nature. Or if you've had a reaction to the first dose um, of the HPV vaccine, then, of course, we would recommend um, that you not uh you know, proceed with getting the second dose. So looks like we have our caller that has joined us. We've got Vivian in Gloucester, Mississippi. Good morning, Vivian. Good morning, Dr. McKenzie. I wanted to know how does HPV relate to HIV and AIDS? Yes, ma'am. So pretty much HPV relating to HIV and AIDS is kind of as I mentioned before. Um, When you have HIV or AIDS, you are considered immunocompromised. And A lot of patients with HPV can oftentimes have a good intact immune system can clear the HPV virus on their own. So that's why sometimes you kind of miss it in screening some people for HPV. 
And HPV virus also has the ability to reactivate. Um, so because of that, when your immune system is compromised, such in patients with HIV and AIDS, you are more likely to have a significant um, infection or complications with HPV. So higher risk of cervical cancer, higher risk of reactivation. Um, so that's really how HPV kind of relates um, in that population. So if you have HIV if, or family member or anyone, then we definitely highly recommend getting vaccinated with HPV. Okay, great. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you so much for your question, Vivian. And so just to add to Vivian's question, as I mentioned, patients that have HIV, your screening for cervical cancer is very different um, and can be very different. And it's going to be very patient dependent. And so actually patients, you know, as I mentioned before, you can oftentimes get away with a pap smear every three years, even though many of our OBGYNs do it every year because insurance is still covering it. Um, if you have HIV um, or AIDS, they most likely we'll do your pap smears every year um, to make sure that we're screening and also screening you for HPV more frequently. And the other thing that they may do, um, which is kind of controversial, depending on who you talk to and the frequency is something that they call coposcopy. And so they kind of essentially um, scrape part of the cervix um you know, from there for those patients to essentially hopefully decrease your risk as well um, of cervical cancer. So again, if you have it, if you have HIV or AIDS, make sure you are seeing your primary care provider or OBGYN and making sure that you are getting your uh, pap smears at the rate that they recommend for you. And there's even some that do cervical cytology every six months. So I you know, that can vary from patient to patient. So make sure you're talking um, with your doctor in general. And so for some people that have just hopped on um, to the radio or logged on online, uh, it's a reminder that January is Cervical Cancer Awareness Month. And like I mentioned before, I love the Awareness Month. It just brings our focus back on some things that we might forget or, you know, need to make sure that we're taken care of. So um, women over the age of 21, you need to be making sure that you're making an appointment with your primary care provider, um, OBGYN, and making sure that you are getting your appropriate screening for cervical cancer. And looks like we have a caller, um, English and Madison. Hi, English. How are you? I'm good. good. I'm, not, I'm not sure exactly how this works. I've never called in before. No worries. And I, and so I get... Should I get your answer on uh, or here in on the phone or on the radio or is it? So we get it on the radio. So sometimes your questions can help other people that are listening as well, or other people might have similar questions. So we like to take it directly on the radio, and I will do my best to answer it. So tell me a little bit about your question this morning. Okay, so I was um, actually diagnosed with cervical cancer, and uh, as far along as a one B three in spite of having had annual pap smears that, you know, were supposedly normal. So I was just curious how long it takes. Um, it was an adenocarcinoma. So how long those may take to grow and how come they weren't captured? You know, it's, I'm just trying to figure out the process that 
Yes, ma'am. Um, and so um, I can tell you this. I, I can tell you what I know as the surface answer, um, but definitely making sure you talk to your primary care provider more about the details of the type of cancer that you have. Um, but oftentimes adenocarcinoma is one of the more rare types um, that you can see. And so that's probably um, why it was more challenging um, for the detection. But how long that takes to grow, that I'm not 100% sure. Um, as I've talked about, I've talked a lot about HPV, that being the most common kind of thing that causes cervical cancer. But as I mentioned before, there are other causes that are a little bit rare. And so you're right. That's the really hard part. I'll be honest about cancer screening in general is, you know, doing your due diligence to make sure that you get your screening done appropriately. And you did the right thing, English. But sometimes, you know, we still develop cancer despite getting the screening. But the beauty of being screened is how early you got to be diagnosed and um, getting that treated a lot sooner. I see. And then the second part I would just mm-hmm. ask is how, um, how often are HPV uh, tests for, you know, I'm, I'm a 23, been married monogamously for 23 years. So does a doctor make those determinations? I never requested them. I'm just curious if they do them like every three years, every five years. So it, it so you bring up a great question, and that's why I say kind of talking to your provider because how often they do it is really based off of your um, history. And so typically for most people, they still will do it about every five years for the HPV testing. Um, as I mentioned, again, if you're higher risk, they might do it a little bit more frequently. Um, but uh, typically for HPV specifically, that is every five years. Okay. Thank you for your help. I appreciate it. And I really appreciate that you're putting this information um, for public awareness. Thank you. And I hope you're doing well, English. And I'm so happy you called and, and shared your story. Oh, thank you. Well, I appreciate it. And keep up the good work. Thank you. You have a great day. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. And so, you know, honestly, um, English is a wonderful example. And we talked a lot about this, you know, in October when we were talking about breast cancer screening and breast cancer awareness, the importance of making sure you stay up to date because, you know, um, many people the previous year or so will have had a negative test. And then you go back for that follow up, your follow up year, you're doing your due diligence and you see those abnormal cells are diagnosed with cancer. But, you know, kind of in English situations, and other patients, oftentimes, if you're staying on track, not always, I don't want to uh, mislead anyone, but you're usually in the earliest stages of the cancer and um, and more likely to have treatment and cure from it the earlier we detect the type of cancer in general. So as I mentioned, when we started this phone call to, you know, started our radio show today and phone calls and things of that nature, that I was really happy about how cervical cancer awareness fell in January and how I really just wanted to take it, not just the opportunity to talk about cervical cancer in general, but just to remind everyone that if you have not made your appointment with your doctor this year, I don't feel how great, I don't care how great you feel, how many miles you run, how fit, all those things, you know, we all are still at risk. And so 
at contrary to popular belief as a doctor, I actually don't like to give out medicines and don't like to, you know, necessarily give out the bad news or things of that nature. I want to prevent these things in my patients and I want to detect these things early. And the only way I can do that is if you come see me um, or go see your doctor. So make sure if you haven't made that appointment with your primary care doctor that you after you listen to this podcast, you go ahead and do it or, you know, put it in the calendar on the day that you're going to do it or do it for your spouse or partner, loved one, whoever it may be to get us all back on track. But just to recap it, you know, cervical cancer. We start that screening at the age of 21, regardless if you're having sex or not. You should be going out at the age of 21, start your screening. Although less than 21, we do not recommend screening with pap smears like we did in the past. I'm not saying that you do not need to see a doctor if you're sexually active. If you're less than 21 and you're sexually active, you still need to be getting you a doctor that is examining you and can be screening you for other types of things, other um, sexually transmitted diseases or other things that you may be at risk for um, when you become sexually active. So again, cervical cancer screening beginning at the age of 21. One, for most people, that's going to be to the age of 65. Um, knowing if your average risk versus high risk is really going to vary patient to patient, but most of our high risk patients are particularly our patients that are immunocompromised. And so your screening interval may, may be a little bit different. And if you don't know what category you fall in, all the more reason to talk to a doctor and make sure that you're getting what you need in general for your screening. Older than 65, have that conversation with your doctor. Um, Um, ultimately when you are supposed to finish your screening. Well, I really hope that um, someone is taking uh, everything that we said today to heart and taking the advice and making sure they're getting what they need. This is Southern Remedy Women's Health. It is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting, Think Radio, and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and generous support from listeners like you. Today's show was engineered by Avery Nanny. I'm Dr. Jasmine Kinsey. Join us next Friday. Friday at 11 for Southern Remedy Women's Health on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.